Hey everybody and welcome to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, bringing you the top health tech news stories and analysis every single week. I'm James and back with me today, I have my co-hosts Jessica and Henry and today we have a guest with us, Rachel Murphy, an entrepreneur, public speaker and work in progress author, she describes herself as big love affair with health tech. She previously led the patient facing transformation of the NHS. So think NHS.UK and the NHS app and library and more recently built and sold different, a public sector services business in a thousand day period. She's also a non-exec at Careology and we are delighted to have her here today. So Rachel, welcome and how are you doing? Uh, yeah, really good. Thanks, James. I tell you, you wouldn't get that intro on a business card, would you? Jesus. <laughs> um, but absolutely delighted to be here. Excellent. And we are delighted to have you. Uh, Jess, Henry, how have your weeks been? My week's been good. I spent Wednesday learning all about imposter syndrome, which, as it turns out, is actually imposter phenomenon. That was cool. I'd actually quite like to know some more about that next week. Um, I Yeah, I got to meet some clients on Tuesday and... Um, try out my acting chops by playing a patient a mental health patient in their latest uh piece for a major national tv network which is good very enjoyable sounds like you're following in the footsteps of your extra imdb megastar dad henry is this uh, a new (laughs) side hustle for you based on my performance on tuesday no uh previous (laughs) acting experience was me playing uh madame de la grande bruce the wardrobe in beauty and the beast about a decade ago uh so yeah safe to say i won't be dedicating any of my time to acting (laughs) any acting experience rachel well um late on a friday night occasionally mate but um, as a general (laughs) rule no Uh, not not my uh, not my calling my creativity is um is is in other areas i think Let's hope it's podcast today. Sounds good good effort so far. Absolutely. Yeah, let's do it. Right, into the stories this week. Right, first story this week. Uh, (laughs) Digital health sunicorns. Henry, the word sunicorn, really? Is this something you've put in or was that in the headline? Tell me that was in the headline. I'm genuinely offended that you think I would come up with a term <laughs> rubbish as Sunicorn. Um, yeah, fine. So I, I, I'll be blunt. I don't like the word. I think it's a bit rubbish. I think we are inundated with um, sort of slightly pointless jargon in certain areas, um, particularly around raises. Unicorn yeah. has been around for so long now that fine, we'll get on with it. Um, also, as raise values go up and as like companies become worth more and more are they even unicorns anymore unicorns meant to be something rare and anyway that's Mm. i suppose it's it's irrelevant really um there are some really good companies in here um some really really strong companies some we know some we are probably not so okay with um so sierra are in there obviously they raised huge amounts uh last week the week before um you've got kaya in there you've got abby medical unmind you've got and i have to mention them because they're bristolian lv as well which is great um so there's some really interesting companies there their latest valuations are all in the hundreds of millions serial are arguably already a unicorn because the highest sort of deal room valuation for them is a billion um what is nice and although i've just said there are more unicorns now than there were before because valuations have gone up generally um it's just nice to see that many companies in there. You know, when we think about digital health unicorns, there aren't huge numbers re- relative to fintech. 
for example, not to bring fintech back into this podcast, <laughs> dirty, dirty fintech. But it's just nice to see so many companies on the edge of that, Dr. Lib, Cree, all of those places. It's a, it's a good sign for an industry that is currently having a bit of a funding blip. Well, I'm, I'm probably with Henry on the term. Um, <laughs> it's a bit random. I mean, personally, I quite like unicorns, um, but um, it's probably not the right podcast for that discussion. Is that as in like the valuation of a company or the no, mythical no, no, creature? No, no, no. Just as in the characters, actually. Henry. But um, that, that, I think, just gives an insight into my uh, into my mental age. Um, <laughs> but I, I do think that there. Uh, I, I think it's interesting seeing this at the minute. Um, there's no denying that there's a tightening up in way of um, you know accessing money uh, from a raise perspective and also valuations. Uh, so but I guess I was about to say as I was growing up, then I realised that that was my thirties. But you know, <laughs> Babylon is the one that I remember um, in way of the kind of unicorn. Um, and um, it is great to see that there are plenty more um, in uh, in that space. Uh, and I, uh, I mean, I know uh, Livy cry reasonably well um, because Juliet Bauer and I worked together at the NHS, uh, and and she's done a you know she's done a cracking job on uh, on really putting foot to the floor in that uh, in that space. But um, yeah, it's it's fantastic seeing the valuations um, and the kind of you know the the drive in that area. Yeah, agreed. Um, as you say, good for the space. I think with everything that we're hearing, the doom and gloom with economies and fundraisers and VCs raising their next funds and all of that kind of narrative, nice to have something positive, right? On to the next story. Right, story number two, trust creates interface between two existing systems Henry, this is newsworthy. An interface between two systems in health tech. <laughs> That's the problem, isn't it? That's what I've been pigeon. <laughs> Why is this here? Because the fact integration is newsworthy shows how far we've got to go. So I remember 2019 being in the world's hottest room as NHSX was launched and Matt Gould stood up and did a speech that was, I mean, I'm sure there were other words in it, but all I took from it was the word integration. Yeah. It was just, he must have had some other words, but it was just all integration. And we all know this is a big problem. The silo, the tech silos within the NHS are a huge, huge, huge problem. There are great companies out there like Wellbeing Software who are doing stuff in radiology to help data flow between places and make it a lot easier for radiologists and radiographers. And that's amazing. But it is still hyper siloed. And to get most processes done, you're using two, three, four, five systems. So the fact that we're like, hey, we've managed to get an EPR to talk to an EPMA. Like, what? <laughs> come on we're better than this we should be better than this and the availability and the kind of i know there are now api standards and things and hopefully those will be enforced strictly it's great that uh northern Lincolnshire and ghoul which is definitely the best name for an nhs <laughs> ghoul is just a nice word to say it's great that they've done this fantastic it will really help their clinicians but the fact that that's made the news is a somewhat damning indictment of the state of integration within the NHS. Yeah, and they described it as a huge undertaking in this release and in this article, which no doubt it was. But to your point, like this is pretty, I was going to use the word epic, but don't want to confuse any more uh, platforms and things into this, but it is exceptionally useful for clinicians, I would say, because the example that they use here 
is that a doctor can now pull a medications list straight from their medicines administration system, the EPMA. So a doctor can just pull a, a patient's medications list straight into a discharge bit of paperwork. So quite literally, that one integration now means that on a practical level, all of those clinicians, those juniors doing that mind-numbing task of transferring words from A to B doesn't actually need to happen anymore and can just be done in one click. And they say, you know, eliminating errors and things like that. And it's funny because the the one of the people they've got quoted in this article and in, in this press release, I assume, is an F1 doctor, a foundation year doctor, a year one doctor that said, thanks to this, it's now straightforward to do discharges. Instead of copying here and doing this, I can now do that. And when you think of the volume of junior doctors and all of that throughput every single year and all of those people doing all that admin, what seems like quite an innocuous thing, and and it should be with the way that we have high standards for what we want health tech to be, and it should feel relatively innocuous that all they've done is just connected this to that. It actually just shows how difficult it can be, but the value there is downstream. Because honestly, I was the F1 on MAU, so the medical admissions unit, and I did the most amount of discharges in of discharge summaries of any F1 in that period, and indeed the two that rotated after me. And so I know this pain. I know this pain so well, and I held focus groups with people to be like, how can we just make this better and all of these different things. It's a real, real problem. And oh, this is uh, it's 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 in, in that category of, of extremely boring but extremely exciting. Uh, yeah, I'm super keen to. So this is probably one of my my favourite and most geeky subjects to discuss. Excellent. So I think the the fundamentals of kind of interoperability. You know, I think the issue is it's not sexy and it's not exciting. And that's probably why it hasn't been solved. And also it's a bastard to do. You know, it is not straightforward. When I first came into the NHS, I assumed the NHS was one large organisation like plenty of people do. Uh, The reality is it's, you know, 20 odd thousand different organisations. However, it shouldn't be as difficult to share data as it is. Um, and, And going back seven years ago, At that time, while I was working within the system, there was a big program of work around data sharing, interoperability. Um, And, you know, as Henry said, those fire standards are in play now, but they're not being Mm. enforced um, and we're not holding suppliers to account. I I interviewed the then German health minister probably this time last year, may have been the year before. It's hard to gauge with the COVID era. Um, And I asked him how they'd solved the problem in Germany. Uh, and in a, a typically Germanic way, he said, we made it law. Uh, and I think therein lies some differences. Um, now, I'm not saying, you know, we've got to be as, as drastic as that. But this is pretty basic from a technical perspective. The, you know, the real complexity is the organisational change, uh, the change of processes and the willingness to want to, to want to do it. So I, you know, am... Um, delighted that they managed to integrate the the two systems but the reality is you know this is quite basic stuff that we should be well beyond you know the reality is there uh, it there is so much complexity still uh, because it's not open api everywhere uh, and um, that kind of drive and willingness um, is 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 just in my opinion it's just still not there we all know 
this has to happen, but it's not sexy and exciting. And that's why it doesn't seem to really get some traction. Sorry, I'll just leap back off my soapbox. (laughs) I was gonna say, I think all of us could probably soapbox about this for a while. I'd be interested though, Rachel, as someone who's who's seen it from the inside, where do you think at a really high level, because I think the four of us could probably talk about this till about midnight, where do you think the solution starts? Do you you go with a more centralized system? Do you mandate that everyone uses the same EPR? What, What would your kind of approach to it be if you were in charge? Uh, So um, it's really easy to say mandate one system, but then you create a monopoly. Um, And I do think the ecosystem in health is powerful and it's more powerful than just saying, here's one, get on with it. But I think that the standards need to, it needs to come from the standards and it needs to come from, um, you know, procurement of systems in the future and some proper management of third party suppliers. Um, you know, and I include myself previously as, as one of those suppliers. So I, I think that's where it really needs to come from. Um, you, you know, if we don't, I mean, uh, personally, I'd set a, you know, a bloody date and work back from that. And if we don't, then, you know, a, a shift towards a slightly more Germanic approach is not a bad move because, um, you know, we've got to get this data flowing. You know, the data really should be in the hands of the patient the entire time. Um, And they should be donating that data to the NHS, in my opinion. Um, And at the minute, it's, you know, it's it's totally arse about face. One thing that I think is really interesting, Rachel, of what you just said, the one thing that I'm going to pull out is that you said that actually on a technical level, relatively straightforward, everything's relative, but relatively straightforward. It's actually the willingness of those in those organizations to change and then the difficulty of the organizational change, that that is actually the barrier here. Whereas I think how difficult it is technically, perhaps it might just be the way that I've interpreted it, but it feels like from my vantage point in the space that that seems to have always been the scapegoat. It's so hard. It's so hard to make things interoperable. Perhaps they are referring to that organizational change, but I've always assumed that perhaps it was more on the technical side, but you're saying perhaps not. I I don't think it is on the technical side. I think seven or eight years ago, you know, when I was last in the system, it was, it was, uh, it would have been achievable technically, if not before then. Um, but I think the complexity comes with 20-odd thousand organisations, multiple systems, an understanding of who's got what where, um, and uh, and then some handshaking across those. And, you know, standards has to be the best way to achieve that in the way that government digital services, you know, started to bring some, you know, rigour and control in that space some, some years ago now for, for sharing with government systems. Um, I yeah I, I just think that the um, I think it is the organisational change um, and the willingness um, that's that's my view I'm sure there'll be plenty of CTOs listening saying mm. she's not right about that technically <laughs> um, no, but, uh, but I do I do think the standards give us the you know that that's the that's the handshake on on the willingness bit do you think is it is it an incentives thing. Because is there real incentive to, where does the incentive to change come from? Where does the incentive to make that better actually come from? Because is it a reliance on the individuals in charge and those responsible? Is it reliance on those individuals to want to do it? And if so, are they not at risk personally doing that? Is is there a financial incentive, let's say, to doing it? Is there, are there other incentives or are there, 
I'm super interested to know your inside view of, of where these incentives lie. Um, I think that's a great question and not an easy one to answer, James. So thank you for that um, <laughs> initially. Um, I, I think that, you know, the, the nature of people is change is always tricky. Mm. Um, and I think if the strategy was about open and sharing and, you know, public money, public code more, then we would be driving in that direction a little mm. more. What we're what we've got at the minute is a lot of proprietary. We've got a lot of long-term contracts. Um, we've got a lot of those contracts that um, have been in place for long periods of time. There needs to be a change in how we've commissioned those contracts as well. And none of that is five minute, you know. So that's why if, if somebody says, you know, why hasn't it happened when it could technically, these are the reasons why. Um, but it does need somebody to focus on the non-sexy stuff and do some heavy lifting. Yes, and we've heard something similar actually recently with um, with what Shafi posted about when you know those Babylon contracts in the, with the NHS um, being cancelled and and him relating to those previous structures and contracts and everything being very difficult. It's it, it's interesting and it's it's funny. The more we do this podcast, the the, the regular things that keep coming up um, that are problems that continue need to be solved. Very interesting that. Anyway, I'll move us on. Story number three. Right, story number three this week. Incredible Health have raised an $80 million Series B. They've reached a $1.65 billion valuation, giving them unicorn status. And they want to be the leader in healthcare hiring. So, Rachel... This is a world that you know. Tell us about this. What's going on? So I guess I know it, James, from uh, doing something similar within the system with mm. uh, with NHS Jobs. So the NHS Jobs platform that Different built with NHS BSA was uh, was about transforming a, uh, a a platform that managed the hiring of um, all people into the NHS. So whether you were a hospital porter or a brain surgeon, the hiring would come through one platform. You would therefore have a clearer view of you know gaps across the system. Um, hard to fill roles, etc. So I, I read that story with interest. I mean, the US market is very different to the UK, uh, but read with interest, they're obviously getting traction on supplying that end-to-end service, uh, which is a model we do see in the UK, um, not within the NHS, uh, within private health. But um, it, it was one that I, um, I, I, I did read with interest and thought um, I can see that model uh, being something that's considered in in the UK in future. Really interesting, just generally to see how much money is going into recruitment and workforce. We saw Patchwork raise the other week. We've seen Lantern raise. We know Locum's Nest have raised. Just in terms of rostering and staff retention and building systems that are better for staff and better at bringing staff into the system, it's a massive problem. It's good to see, even if this is stateside, uh, the money getting there. Yeah, agreed. Um, looking at the investors in this as well, I mean, I always, I always like to look at who's invested at these types of levels, and especially when it's health tech, to see names like uh, Andreessen Horowitz, to see you know Kaiser Permanente is a bit more obvious, but still very credible, very interesting. It's it's a real problem. This um, that's looking to be solved, and as Henry said with it 
being stateside, uh, it's obviously a diff- slightly different problem to solve, but we are seeing this in the UK as well. And it's becoming a very consistent media narrative, the workforce problem. And lots of different startups are around trying to solve it in different ways. I think it is a very, very interesting space to watch. Cool. On to story number four. So story number four this week, psychedelics are having a moment and women could be the ones to benefit, uh, as reported by Technology Review. Uh, Rachel, what do you know about psychedelics? Uh, More than most, I think, actually, James. That's from a misspent youth, but I'll bring (laughs) it a little bit more up to, to current day. So psychedelics for me is something that I have been researching pretty heavily uh, in the last 18 months. Um, And I researched it from a personal standpoint uh, because um, I'm eight and a half years sober uh, and there's been some really good uh, thinking around uh, managing addiction better with psychedelics. So it was that angle that I kind of went into it uh, and then um, I saw kind of more and more around mental health. Um, and, you know, none of these things are a silver bullet, but there's some really interesting studies being undertaken in the UK, Canada and the States at the minute, uh, around, you know, if you give your brain an opportunity for a reset with with a psychedelic, um, then, you know, does that um, break, kind of, uh, I guess, break from a positive perspective? Does that allow you to break repeated process thinking that isn't positive. Uh, So I'd spent a long time in the last 18 months researching uh, psychedelics, have invested in a couple of uh, psychedelic companies uh, and took myself off uh, to a psychedelic retreat earlier this year. So Mm. um, big, uh, I'm a big fan. Uh, I think it's early stages. I think everybody wants to believe this is the silver bullet. Um, The reality, in my opinion, is there's a need for the plant medicine and psychotherapy. I think the two go hand in hand. Um, And, um, yeah, it's going to be interesting seeing what comes out. Uh, I know that Awaken are doing some ketamine trials in London and in Bristol at the minute, uh, and they're getting great, great traction. Um, They've just had some funding from Innovate UK, and Albert Labs are a company based out in Canada uh, who are wanting to trial uh, psilocybin with cancer patients later this year in the UK. So cancer patients can't take an SSRI when they're undergoing radiotherapy or chemotherapy. So they, I know that Albert Labs are exploring. Could they, uh, you know, could they run a, a pilot uh, with patients? So um, I know a fair bit about it. I, what I don't know, didn't know though, James, was the context of that article. So I found that uh, personally really interesting. Mm. Uh, but uh, it's a hot space, yeah, very hot space at the minute. Yeah, definitely. And the angle that they've taken seems to be that women are more likely to have PTSD. Women are more likely to have lots of conditions that could be solved and the question being is this the beginning of a brighter future for women's health one where the disorders that are more prevalent in females could well be managed by mind-altering trips well there's also there's lots of different ways to take that but um but yeah as you say I, i i do think it's interesting as well i i've seen a few documentaries on various psychedelics dmt psilocybin 
lots of different things. Um, and I do find it interesting why the research stopped happening in those late, what was it, 60s, 70s, 80s, whenever it actually stopped. It was interesting why it stopped, and it's interesting now why it's now coming back on the table. As it comes back on the table, that people have a, a sort of a view, don't they? They have a feeling as to psychedelics. When you start mentioning ketamine, when you start mentioning MDMA, people are just, I suppose there is a, there's an establishment that's innately and inevitably going to feel that, well, we are now just gatewaying recreational drugs to people via this. And there's, there's always going to be that narrative, isn't there? And especially when we talk about things like LSD and all these things that there was a lot of sort of emotion surrounding definitely at the time where they were banned. And then obviously as a class A drug since, and yeah, it's, it's funny. I, I, I do find, I do find it interesting because from a medical perspective, you know, just thinking about the, you know, I st- you st- particularly the likes of ketamine you study as an anesthetist and trying to do your anesthetic exams, you learn about the mechanism of action, you learn just very scientifically about what the psychedelic, psychedelic drugs actually are and what they actually do and the pathways that they touch upon and things like that. And you start to realize that, okay, we'll use ketamine to anesthetize people in a very legal fashion and all that kind of thing. And so, for me, it's funny. They are. It's just a drug in my mind that, it, just as paracetamol is, or ibuprofen is, or, or any other drug is. Yes, they have these different effects, but I can see it for what it is, rather than that more kind of emotive. Oh, they're recreational drugs. They're class A's. It's going to end up in all this stuff. And I think in the right context of of going well, actually, in the clinical study that's well controlled, it can have these results. I hope that we can sort of enter a new paradigm i've said the words you know a new realm if you will or or just a new time where we actually take these for what they are and use them for what they're good at um don't know if you got any thoughts on that i think the other bit for me is this how to change your mind at the minute the new doco on netflix Mm. um, is starting to make this a bit more mainstream so michael pollan's book i read a, a long time ago um but but when you start to um i remember talking to my parents about psychedelics 18 months ago and i think they thought i'd lost the plot um but but of course it now is becoming much more mainstream and at that point it does become more acceptable um but i uh i you know i think we've probably got quite a long way to go in the uk we're quite conservative um in in, in some of this thinking but you know the proof has to be clinical trial and prove it. Um, The difficulty with mental health is we haven't had advancements with medicine for 25 years. Um, So, you know, SSRIs are as as good as it gets. Um, And and I'm not knocking that in the slightest. Um, But I do think starting to have a look at some of this stuff. And, you know, a lot of this plant medicine has been used for thousands of years. So there's absolutely something to be to be said for it. But I guess I'd counter that by saying there are also people who will, you know, take the opportunity. Um, Not everybody is looking at this from a clinical perspective. And that's that's Mm. the danger with not having regulated as well so um it's uh, it's subjective but but sorry henry i'm on another of my favorite subjects i it's one of mine as well and i think i think this as you said it's not that societally acceptable it's a weird thing to talk about but in politics you have that thing called the overton window right so the amount of stuff that the public will accept and at either end you have this is extreme radical thinking but the overton window shifts over time right it moves around so that you've got stuff that 
think about gay marriage in the 60s yeah. would have been like an unthinkable piece of policy to exist in politics. Like, There's no way this is ever going to happen. Marriages between a man and a woman. Now, completely normal. It's always been completely normal. Now it's legalized. So I think the same thing will happen with psychedelics. If you look at like medical marijuana in the States and how many states have now adopted that, and we know that the uses for marijuana in the UK are limited, but we know that it can have a huge medical impact on certain conditions. I do think that society will shift to view these as more acceptable if, as you say, Rachel, the evidence is there, the proof is there, and we can say definitively, or as definitively as you ever can say, this can help with X, Y, Z. So I think I think that will change. I hope it will change, mainly for Bristol's economy. But um, yeah. <laughs> Bristol leading the way there, Henry. I mean, yeah, I really enjoyed the fact that, uh, was it Awaken, you said, have chosen to use London and Bristol. I was like, I wonder why they've chosen Bristol for a <laughs> ketamine trial. <laughs> I should say to anyone listening, I do live, I do live in Bristol. I love it. Just... They, uh, they started in Bristol, actually. London was the second base. So uh, maybe they picked up the supplies in Bristol, Henry. Who knows? I couldn't possibly say. <laughs> <laughs> Good to end that there, I think, on that discussion. And our fifth and final story today, 10 care tech startups to watch, according to VCs. Henry, who are they? I was going to say, what do they do? They obviously do care tech. But uh, yeah, any surprises in there? Any interesting ones? Yeah, clue clue very much in the care tech title. Um, <laughs> I, I'll put in pigeon like the deep, dark, open secret of all of these ones to watch awards or like, you know, actual or a lot of the actual awards is that they're self-nominated a lot of the time um but this one's actually been written by a vc so um a guy from calm storm ventures um who are vienna based um and i believe none of these are in his portfolio so it's him and a guy from heel capital as well who are in berlin um so yeah there's some there's some people you'd expect in there so uh, Lottie, um who only founded like last year or so which is one of the um search tools to look between different care homes which as someone who's had to do that fairly recently for help to do that i should say for a relative i know that uh that was an incredibly useful tool um there's some other places like keto which is a spanish uh, startup who uh help with remote monitoring for um families and people who can't live autonomously um so it's both tech and also the physiotherapy that goes around it there's some um there's some of our favorites in there as well i know jess will touch on them and then places like vera as well so not just the usual list that you would expect to see quite an interesting one um breaks down all of their funding how much they've raised where they're based um so yeah highly recommend having a skim through that it seems less uh less biased than a lot of ones to watch lists i think it's always nice to see an unbiased i guess analysis of companies that are actually doing good things rather than as henry said kind of self-nominated or yeah it's really nice to see an analysis from uh someone who is kind of providing their unbiased vantage point. And I think with also a really good view right across the whole industry. So yeah, and I'm particularly excited to see Birdie in there. Uh, in part, and shameless plug, here we go. Our next Health Tech Talks Google event is coming up in September and Max, the CEO of Birdie, is going to be joining us. So I'm really excited to hear what they've been up to recently and uh, what they've got planned for the future. So hopefully we can get a bit of a first-hand download from from him in terms of what's happening in age tech and care tech as well as just what birdie's doing so if anyone wants to join get in touch yeah absolutely definitely looking forward to chatting to max on stage at that that'd be really cool um 
clearly lots going on in this space. And I've now got uh, an article to point to uh, with a few extra names and a few things that I can research. That's ideal. <laughs> um, Grace from Holly Health will also be on that stage as well. 8th of September, if anybody wants any tickets, give us a shout. As Jess says, they are sold out, but we do have a few extras. Rachel, anything in that last story you want to chat about? Any any care tech that you're involved in? Any care tech that you like? Final word on care tech? I get... <laughs> Do you think it's about care tech? No, I'm joking. Um, I um, I think that the bit that really that stuck out for me was around the digital dentistry stuff. So that's not mm. an area that we're seeing much. Well, I'm sorry, I'm I'm not that close to it. So maybe there is more in the UK. But I found that quite interesting in way of um, you know some of the ability to do this via a telehealth platform with 3D modelling and various 3D tools uh, for somebody who's just experienced you know lots of pain and uh, lots of surgery from a dentist perspective. But the reality in the UK is we do have a bit of a crisis in way of being able to access an NHS dentist right now. So. Uh, those two, I think there was two mentions of different companies, apologies, the names haven't stuck in my head. Um, but starting to have a think about models like that, you know, could, could well help with uh, some of the challenges we uh, we have over here. Love it. Thanks so much, everybody, uh, for joining this week. Uh, for all the listeners, that was your run through of the week's news in health tech. Uh, there are a few extra stories, a few podcasts, things to listen to, a couple of jobs you can grab in Health Tech Pigeon the newsletter. If you want to read any of the stories you've heard today or grab any of those extra links, visit www.healthtechpigeon.com. You can subscribe to the newsletter and, of course, you can share it with all of your friends because we would like more listeners to this podcast and readers of the newsletter. Um, Rachel, thanks so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for your insights. Um, Jess and Henry, thanks so much as always. Uh, we'll see you all next week.